Have you guys seen the piece about Bill Ackman's wife. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It just came out. At least, at least it's all over Twitter. No. That she too supposedly committed plagiarism. Well, this is oh, my wow. great uh, fear of the, the Harvard mm. scandal is that everybody is going to be going back and rereading uh, everyone's, you know. Yes. This just reminds me so much of um, Robert Penn Warren, All the King's Men. You can Always find something on people if you look hard enough, mm. and especially if you're really unfair. Well, uh, you know, I wonder what was in Elise Stefanik's senior thesis mm. at Harvard. If there's any I reporter. bet you're not the only one wondering, Susan. <laughs> I bet you. Enterprising reporters at the Crimson are digging. Welcome to the political scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Merrim. Hi, Evan. Great to be with you. Hey, Susan. Great to be back. Hi, Jane. Hey, great to see you. This Saturday, January 6th, is not only the first Saturday of this election year, it is the third anniversary of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And if there's one thing that's become clear over the last three years— The war over what happened on January 6th is reshaping our politics and is going to dominate 2024 in ways we can hardly imagine because of the ongoing legal fallout that Donald Trump and thousands of his supporters face as a result of their actions on that day. I think it's fair to say that January 6th and its aftermath will be, in fact, a real touchstone for both President Biden and President Trump's campaigns in the year ahead but of course, in profoundly different ways. And so this week, we wanted to look at the long shadow of January 6th in Washington, how its place in our politics has evolved over the last three years, how Trump and his Trumpians have revised the very history of what happened on that day, and how its memory, or lack thereof, is likely to shape the 2024 election. I have to say, Jane, I'd like to get right into this because I feel like it's one of the most remarkable acts of historical revisionism in real time that any of us has ever seen in American politics. I know. It's extraordinary because you would think three years later, by now, we've all seen what happened. Mm. You would think that by now people would have been charged, which many people have, but that people would accept in a kind of a consensus way that this was a horrible moment in American history. And quite the opposite. Not only is the country as divided as it was then, it's in some ways more so. We've seen fewer people now hold Trump personally responsible for the violence that took place on that day, and fewer people now think that Biden legitimately won the election than they did back then. I mean, disinformation, I think you have to say, has succeeded. And um, it's seeped kind of into the entire body politic at this point. You know, Evan, it's really notable how Trump himself has evolved in how he speaks about January 6th. I'm struck that, you know, maybe he was right in a sense, and and even all those sort of panicky Republicans who were texting the White House on January 6th saying, oh, no, our legacy is at issue. You know, Donald Trump proved this brazen thesis that we started the show with. But what does he say about January 6th today versus what he said three years ago? And and 
why is that working with Republicans? You know, I think in some ways we, we're all used to the idea that he creates these alternative facts. That's the simplest, smallest thing. This is really something else. This is like a, an invention of an entire alternative universe, really, in which it was a beautiful day. There was love in that. There was love and unity. I have never seen such spirit and such passion and such love. These were people parading through the Capitol. And then I think there was a key moment when he started to talk about the people who had been prosecuted as hostages. And, you know, he's, and that became a, a, a real theme that he would say these people are being mistreated. They're being treated worse than terrorists, than murderers. He, he then began to sort of glide into the whole conspiracy world and it was, OK, it was Antifa and actually it was federal agents, provocateurs. And pretty soon you see it becoming a central feature of the whole right wing ecosystem. We're going to talk about that. But it, it, in some ways it's become sort of the perfect demonstration of his most effective and destructive media techniques. I, I have to before we move on, you were there. Was it a beautiful day? Oh, gosh. I mean, it was a horror. I, I have to say, I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but it was, uh, as a reporter, it was something that you don't expect to see, you know, three miles from your front door. And I came to see it as a as sort of a signal moment in American life. And I will be the first to say, I don't think I had any sense of the way in which something that seemed so completely, indisputably, obviously terrible could be <laughs> right. transmuted through Trumpism into what it's become. Well, that's I mean, right. I, I think, Jane, you know, you can envision and we all could have envisioned maybe at that moment, OK, that Trump could somehow come back politically or that he wouldn't, you know, leave gracefully the stage or that he would run again in 2024. But the most unlikely thing is that he would be doubling down on this, that that the basic facts of what we all saw, don't believe your own lying eyes. Was there a moment when you saw the kind of the, the, the narrative for Republicans shift or, or that Trump started to double down on creating this this completely untrue version of what happened? I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, he wobbled and seemed a little bit nervous about it for about two days <laughs> after it took place. And part of the reason was that because it was so obvious and so many people had seen it who were Republicans on the Hill, they denounced it. Loudly. Mm. I mean, this was shattering to them. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. And then I think probably the turning point to me was probably when Kevin McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago mm -hmm. not long after, just days afterwards, and basically kissed Trump's ring. And you could see that the party was falling back in line. And from that point on, it's been falling in line ever more. I mean, there were 10 members of the House of Representatives who had voted to impeach uh, Trump over this. It's a tiny number of the caucus. And of those, I think only two have been reelected since then. So, I mean, the, the, the cost for, for taking him on has been made clear to everybody else in the party. And there are very few heroes there. Well, the falling in line, I think, has been well documented. But I think it's, it's it, this 
January 6th revisionism kind of crept up on us more, though. Right. Like, it's one thing to go ahead and bow back down to Trump. In fact, two thirds of the House Republican conference literally voted not to certify the election to go along with his lies about the 2020 election within hours of the the attack on the Capitol itself. But this changing of the story to actually for Trump to actually be running on January 6th, which is kind of the reality that's hitting me in the face on this first week of 2024. Well, I feel like it's a it's a really fantastic lesson in the kind of propaganda that Hannah Arendt described actually in The New Yorker, um, which is that the idea is almost not so much just to make people believe lies. Part of it is to tell lies that are so fantastic Mm. that people don't know what to believe, that they just stop believing anything's true. Anything's possible. Nothing's possible. It totally just it makes it impossible for the real truth to break through when there's this one. There are lies that are this bold and and kind of Absurd, And of course, Evan, there's also this huge kind of right wing cheering section uh, there to create and fuel these conspiracy theories in a kind of mutual feedback loop with Donald Trump. And again, I'm blown away that three full years later, mm. this is still happening. There are still new conspiracy theories being spread uh, and old ones that are gaining new life. For example, there's this Washington Post poll this week. Jane cited it and University of Maryland that more Republicans uh, don't believe Biden was legitimately elected now than did two years ago. But also, I noticed in that poll, uh, something like 34 percent of Republicans actually believe the bogus conspiracy theory that it was the FBI itself that incited January 6th. And there was this great piece in in the Post this week uh, about uh, the role of the Gateway Pundit in uh, just, again, this year, not even, you know, two years ago, fostering and spreading a new conspiracy theory. What was that about? I'll give you, um, in a sense, the the road to that, because I think it's important to point out something. I think all of us had these moments where we began to realize to some degree, oh, wait a second, this thing is traveling through the right wing information sphere in weird ways. Remember Madison Cawthorn, the now former congressman down in North Carolina? From North Carolina. Oh, I so happily forgot him. Right. Well, there was a moment when he was running in 2021. It was in the summer. And he was asked by somebody in the audience about January 6th. And Cawthorn had said after January 6th, he said it was disgusting. It was pathetic. You know, he said, this is not the way to do anything. And then here he was in a year later, or less than a year later, saying that the Uh, that the people who'd been arrested were political prisoners and that if we were going to, quote, bust them out, unquote, and then off and off he went. And what was really striking to me about it was it was a person in the audience who had raised the question, meaning it was there. It was it was kind of leaching out into the groundwater. And the question is how? And the answer is this combination of people like Trump and institutions like the Gateway Pundit. For people who aren't checking it every day, Gateway Pundit is uh, something that started actually as a, a just a blog back in 2004, eventually became uh, pretty large. I mean, it had something like 7 million visitors a month. It's come down over the years a bit, but it plays a pretty important role in the right-wing ecosystem. Jane, I think you I mean, you've Gateway at Pundit, it, right? that's so, it's absolutely right, because its model is that it takes junk that's mm. out there on the internet and it, it uh circulates it and gives it sort of the the aura of being news because it appears on a platform and once it appears at gateway pundit then 
other news organizations can pick it up. And so so it's, it becomes a kind of a vector mm. of, of garbage, basically. And, and yet th- amplified by the, the former president himself and his lieutenants like Rudy Giuliani. That's what I, I was struck by, right? It's not just like at the crazy extremes, but it's actually also being circulated by, you know, the people at the top who have these enormous platforms and huge followings. And it's incredibly useful to them. Trump gets his crazy material from them. He also, uh, you know, it's like a feedback loop. Yeah. I mean, and he's brandished copies of, you know, things that are in the Gateway Pundit to prove that he's right, even when the facts are wrong. And, And so it's very useful for him. And the other thing I think we have to say is that if you take a look at something like the Gateway Pundit, it's enormously lucrative to lie online Mm -hmm. and to spread lies online. And we're at a moment where the people who tell truths for a living, the media that's actually the real media, is collapsing. And what's expanding is the alternative facts that are made up sort of quasi-entertainment on TikTok and and kind of junk that people come up with that's then spread everywhere. So, I mean, there's an economic incentive behind this as well, and it works for the people in power. I mean, somebody like like Trump. So it's a dangerous two-step. <laughs> two-step or, uh, you know, I don't know how many steps it took us to get to this terrible place. But, uh, but Evan, obviously, Gateway Pundit is is not the only right. outlet doing something like this. A, a number of us noticed this week, uh, you know, an ad popping up in our feeds on the platform formerly known as Twitter uh, for something called Epic Times and mm. a documentary, two-part documentary, which they're releasing the second part uh, this January 6th. And it claims to be the real story of uh, what happened on January 6th, which not surprisingly uh, is not what any of us saw with our eyes, but is a story of nefarious uh, police complicity and the like. What is the what's, Epic what's Times? The deal with yeah, Epic who has Times, an? Right? Why do they have an interest in uh, undermining, uh, you know, our democracy? Like, yeah, that? it is one of the weirder little subcultures of this period. I mean, Epic Times for people who work on China was people remember it was created in back in two thousand. It came out of the Falun Gong movement. This was this spiritual movement that the Communist Party uh, smashed. Went after very. hard. And it's in the diaspora. People started this little newspaper. It was one of those kinds of, you know, little handouts on the corner that you would see. And for years, it was pretty obscure and they covered mostly China stuff. And then around 2015, 2016, it was really 2016, I think, um, that they made a couple of big changes. One, they decided that they were spiritually aligned with Donald Trump, that he was some kind of anti-China crusader. It was kind of sort of similar to the way the evangelical movement decided that this guy who seemingly had nothing to do with them was their Messiah. They also bet big on Facebook and they became kind of really skilled practitioners of social media. You put that together, you add Steve Bannon saying, oh, I see a vector, to use Jane's good word, and off you go. And it's now this immensely lucrative proposition. Their revenue tripled over the course of the uh, Trump administration. Why do I mean, they care about January 6th? I think in the end it is, I remember actually, I mean, incidentally, I was, when I was there on that day, I remember seeing Falun Gong people, uh, their signs holding it. I was like, <laughs> what are you doing here? It was just so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, but the inception of that union between the two was the idea that this was the thing that was going to take down the Chinese Communist Party. That was the origin of the of that of that alliance. And I wrote a piece not long ago about a Chinese billionaire in exile who is a kind of purported critic of the Communist Party. 
But he is very wrapped up in this whole thing, this guy named Guo Wengui. He's one of Steve Bannon's funders. Exactly. And I have to say, I remember going to see Steve Bannon at some point, uh, you know, a fancy hotel in New York. And he said to me that his plan was to bring down the CCP. And yeah. I said, the what? And he said, the Communist Party of China. And I said, well, yeah, right. Good luck. You know, but but this is what he's been working on. And I mean, the thing is, is this a, a foreign news organization that is spreading disinformation widely through America? Uh, it's not really a foreign news organization. As far as we know, it's more like something like Gateway Pundit that is this. Um, it's this because it's in the diaspora. But I think the lesson of it is, is the way in which this period and the kind of maximalist, extremist, semi-violent mode that this politics exists in forms these bizarre linkages. And they are very powerful in combination. And the combination of places like you know, the obscure blogger that started Gateway Pundit combined with somebody like Steve Bannon, combined with big money in the background, and then, of course, Donald Trump's big mouthpiece. You put that together and it has just a tremendous impact. I thought you were just going to say Donald Trump's big mouth. (laughs) Uh, Well, and of course, speaking of which, like, I would love to say that this is just a conversation around, you know, for history, that we're just, you know, kind of studying and trying to unpack this phenomenon. But of course, this question of why and how is January 6th still being uh, lied about and and misrepresented in our politics is actually going to be uh, the subject of innumerable courtroom hearings this year, Jane, because I'm looking forward to this in a way with both dread and anticipation because this is not only the year of the election, but it's the year when finally some of Trump's wild and reckless actions surrounding January 6th and uh, what led up to it are going to be considered in a court of law where he's going to be held accountable. So what is the state of play uh, of January 6th when it comes to the legal front? Well, I mean, I think the big question is whether the law can move fast enough. Just setting aside Trump for a minute, there's a question of whether it's sort of the libel trials and the defamation trials against the people who are spreading this kind of disinformation are going to move fast enough and have a big enough effect, for instance, to to make Fox think twice before it puts out really bad information again. Gateway Pundit is in the midst of, of litigation. Jim Hoff, the person who started it, is actually himself litigating against fact checkers um, while while there is also a libel suit against him. Um, all of these cases, so the question of whether the law can really hold people accountable fast enough, I think, is what's hanging over this election. Mm. Although, I mean, in some ways, we already have the answer, which is no, because if it, the law had held Donald Trump accountable fast enough, then it wouldn't be hanging over this election. Well, I mean, he may, we may very well, though, see, even if he gets the nomination on the Republican side, he may be facing a trial, which is obviously an unprecedented situation. Exactly. So what are the two, th- there are two cases, really, uh, in the criminal cases, Evan, that involve January 6th and 2020. Those are the federal criminal case against Trump filed by Jack Smith and then the Georgia state case. There are also, I believe it's now up to 14 states that have uh, sought to bar Trump from the ballot by citing his role uh, in January 6th and the events leading up to it by calling him an insurrectionist. Those cases say that according to the 14th Amendment of the Constitution passed after the Civil War, that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and should not be allowed to run for office. So all of those seem to me part of the long shadow 
if you will, of January 6th. Do you see any actual direct consequence in, in the election? The truth is we already see some evidence in the polling that there is some space between how Trump supporters feel about him as an indicted candidate versus a potentially convicted candidate. And, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about what might happen by the time the election comes. I think the general feeling these days is that the prospect of having him ejected from the ballot uh, on the basis of the 14th Amendment probably will not pass the Supreme Court. They will not try to intervene in a way that would do that. So I can tell you one thing. Thing. We're going to be talking about it more today. I don't think the Biden campaign is counting on Donald Trump being chucked off the ballot. Well, that's a perfect uh, segue. Uh, let's take a quick break. And I guess when we come back, we'll talk about President Biden and the role that January 6th is playing in his reelection campaign. Hey, Political Scene listeners, we are getting ready for a new phase here, the 2024 election. And we want to hear from all of you. We want to hear your questions about any and all of it. There have been a lot of questions about how the media has covered politics, particularly Trump, in the last couple of years. And I I think it'd be really interesting to hear questions from listeners about what they actually want to hear about. So, So send in your questions. Yeah, fire away. I mean, we want to hear from you. So tell us what we should be talking about in 2024, because uh, your opinion matters. Send us your questions at themail at newyorker.com, and you might hear some answers on the show. Be sure to put the political scene in the subject line. Again, it's themail at newyorker.com. And thank you very much. And now back to the show. So let's turn to President Biden and the Democrats. Of course, for the last three years, Biden has at many important points along the way invoked January 6th to describe the threat facing our democracy from Trump and the Trumpists who comprise his MAGA movement. Here's a clip of him back on January 6th, 2022, the one-year anniversary of the insurrection. The pain and scars from that day run deep. I've said it many times, and it's no more true or real than we think about the events of January 6th. We are in a battle for the soul of America. The battle for the soul of America. I mean, that's really why Biden was running for office in the first place back in 2020. Just this week, Biden released his first campaign out of 2024, which in some ways goes all the way back to that 2020 campaign. The montage in that ad includes plenty of footage from January 6th, including that really horrific image. I think that's the iconic image of January 6th, the gallows and the noose there for Mike Pence on the lawn of the Capitol. In the ad itself, Biden continues. There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? All right, Evan, You follow President Biden very closely. You've literally written the book on him. Is January 6th and the threat posed by Trump, is that what the Biden people see as the magic recipe for him winning re-election? Well, it's no 
accident that it is the first big speech and the first big ad they're doing of 2024. This is, in a sense, them saying we are putting not just democracy, but violent political extremism at the center of this campaign. I mean, that is really where they've come down. Like like all campaigns, they were kind of fishing around in the beginning. They're like, is this going to be about economics? Is this going to be about legislation? Is this going to be about other things, foreign policy? No. In the end, they landed on this. And I think, um, look, it's a very anxious time for Democrats. People aren't sure what they make of the idea of Biden running again. And he's got very low approval ratings. But, you know, what strikes me, guys, is if you look at the ad that they just ran now and you compare it to the ad they ran in 2020, it really was like you just substitute January 6th for what the role that the Charlottesville neo-Nazis played. That this has been, in the end, a very consistent theme. That is more or less why this guy's doing it. And yeah. I think that's what I mean, he's hear. even got a little flashback in that ad. You can see a few... Seconds of the tiki torches in Charlottesville, which I figured was sort of in there just to remind people, um, you know, this is why I'm here. And then he moves, I think, by 12 seconds, he's into January 6th. You know, I mean, it worked last time. I don't know whether it will work again this time. But I have to say, I think one of the things that might make a big difference is whether his base recreates the kind of political violence that we saw on January 6th or in, even in some lesser way. If they charge the courthouse where he's likely to be facing charges mm. or if there's sort of any kind of sort of political violence around voting again, I think it will all connect up with what he's saying. Do you think, Evan, that, that Biden has changed at all in how he views the aftermath of 2020, I mean, and how he talks about January 6th, because it does seem remarkably <laughs> consistent, yeah. almost, you know, sort of fill in the blanks. No, I think, I mean, I, I, I tend to take him pretty, sort of take him at his word on this thing. This, You know, there is a way in which he has a view of politics that you know, you don't really often get to choose what it is as it becomes the defining issue of your time, whether it's in the, you know, whatever office it is, that the thing finds you. And I think he felt this very intense sense of being thrust into this moment. And, you know, that's politically perilous. I mean, there was a time, remember, in the beginning of the uh, Biden administration when people said, oh, he's over reading what history has given. And that's why they were sort of going for these FDR analogies and saying the country is ready for these transformative economic changes, when in fact it wasn't really. But the fact is that he has felt from the very beginning, that Trump is a very specific and urgent call to action. Yeah. One of the things that's also striking about this ad, if this is the sort of first salvo, is it doesn't actually name Trump. You see the Trump supporters, the sort of the MAGA movement, but it doesn't take him head on. And and I think Biden's been very reluctant also to talk about the the criminal indictments of Trump. I mean, he has a sort of an old-fashioned idea that that's for the Justice Department to handle and it's improper for the White House to be weighing in and for the president to weigh in. So he's in a kind of a slightly hands-off position when it comes to Trump. I think uh, there's a couple of reasons why he doesn't name Trump exclusively in this thing. You have to remember, Trump's not yet the nominee. And there is, of course, a real political risk in building. And this is, you know, look, it's it's a fact. They are building this around the 
threat posed to democracy. That's going to be a tougher case to make against Nikki Haley. But what they are going to say is that anybody else who ends up at the top of the ticket, look, they are banking on the fact that it's going to be Trump. But if it's somebody else, then they are putting that person as the head of, and this is a a, a notable term that was in the ad, an extremist movement that does not share our belief in democracy. This is about more than Trump. That's the point in a sense. And what that is giving them a little bit of wiggle room politically, depending on what happens. But it's also about trying to establish the idea that this is this is something that is a, a cancer that is deeper than just this one man. And I think that makes a lot of sense on the level of rhetoric. But for somebody who describes as he is doing once again this week, that the fight to save democracy is the is the signature issue of his presidency. What can you actually point us to that he's done? Do you see, you know, concrete examples in your reporting where Biden really has been willing to, you know, do things to shore up the democracy or to, to take on the issue? Well, he's, I mean, he's mostly think, seen focused on things like the economy and more traditional governance, his infrastructure bill and chips. Act. I guess that, I mean, I think you would say, well, and this is, again, this awkward point where he's not personally getting into the Justice Department. What he did was he chose an attorney general who has built a Justice Department team that is now overseeing a cascade of unprecedented prosecutions executions of a former president. I'll leave it to people to decide if they think that that is adequately or robustly addressing the threat to democracy. I mean, what would you have him do, Susan? I think it's a real question. Like, what do you want to see him do that he hasn't done? Because they have 11 months, and I think this is the time to begin to say those things. Well, that's right. And of course, what can you do when the country is so divided? That was a point that Jane started this conversation out with. And I think it bears repeating as we begin this 2024 election year, there by many indicators, the lights are blinking even more red than they were on that day of January 6th itself in terms of uh, our ability to overcome this. And my fear headed into this year is that we're in, you know, we're truly in the doom loop. We are trapped in a rerun of the 2020 election, it looks like, for all intents and purposes. Uh, The actual elections start in less than two weeks, by the way. Uh, So we'll see what happens uh, in the Iowa caucuses. At the moment, Donald Trump appears to be on track to uh, win a bigger victory than any Republican ever has in modern times in the Iowa caucuses. So uh, it's not exactly a rebuke for uh, the only president in American history to seek to overturn the legitimate results of an election. You you know, I have to say one of the most amazing facts to me was in recent polls, People have been asked whether they believe that Trump will accept the election if he loses. Almost 75 percent of Americans at this point do not believe that he will accept a peaceful transfer of power. Mm. Yet, I mean, this is a that's why that's a really large plurality of people, um, majority of people. I mean, and so. I think people see what what the situation is, yet so many of them support him anyway. Wow. All right. We are starting the year talking about January 6, 2021. Big stakes. Evan, will we be ending the year talking about it? Um, I, we'll, we'll see. I, I, uh, I want to actually add one thing that gives me a little bit of confidence, which is that the American people had a choice in 2022 in the midterm elections. There were a bunch of election deniers on the ballot. And they lost one after another. And I'm not sleeping easily at night, but I do have confidence that when you get into a moment when somebody has to decide, do they want to put this election denier in the position of power, 
people seem to veer off at the last minute. So I'm, I've, I've got my fingers crossed, listeners. That's no, I'm, I'm with you, Evan. And I have to say, if, if anyone missed it, go back and look at a recent story about the Michigan Republican Party, which is imploding because it's got an election denier at its head. It, it They're all at each other's throats. There was literally a fist fight recently in which somebody's dentures <laughs> got broken. So, <laughs> I'm not uh, sure how reassuring not, this is, well, though. I, I must just, say. As a little asterisk to the <laughs> the point about uh, 2022, the other result of that election was that uh, election deniers took control of the House of Representatives. And Mike Johnson, who was, uh, uh, according Barely. to inside accounts, <laughs> a, a leading election den- denier, is now the Speaker of, of the U.S. This House. Uh, and uh, we'll see if he's still in office a year from now. Yeah, that <laughs> is a con- that's a prediction I'm more <laughs> confident in making. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Susie Lechtenberg. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening.